Podcasting from anywhere other than a jail cell, this is Soberholic, a podcast created to encourage, equip, and inspire you to overcome your hurts, habits, and hangups. And now, your show hosts, Roger and Jason. Welcome back to Soberholic Podcast. I'm your host, Roger Bowes, and I'm here with Jason Rice, which is the best co-host in all of the world. I'm the best co-host. I'm, I'm your favorite co-host, right? You, you are my favorite. You're you're definitely my favorite, and you well you you will always be my favorite as long as you are my co-host. Right. The day that you say I quit, then you will no longer be my favorite. I ain't quitting yet. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, well we're going to talk about a lot, and we're going to be talking really about uh, what we're going to title is seven pillars to an effective recovery program. And while it probably isn't all inclusive, is that I think that's the word I'm looking for, but um. Well, I said a pillar already, but I'm talking about this. There are probably more pillars that you could talk about here, but we're going to name off five of them. Five of them, yes. And these five are some of, some of the ones that we believe are the most important. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I just kind of wanted to stop and do this because sometimes we don't do this. I mean, in fact, most times we don't do this. It's kind of like recovery. You just kind of take things for granted. Uh, but I, we want to say thank you to our listeners who continue to download the show, subscribe to the show on, on all the podcast platforms. We've seen even through our new website at SoberholicPodcast.com, um, there's just plenty of people now downloading and subscribing to what we do and sharing this with people. Well, we've seen that as people have liked us on now Twitter, Twitter, yeah. uh, um, Instagram, and then Facebook. Now, I know nothing about Twitter. Um, that's the reason I call it Twitter all the time because I just don't know. And there's, but, a, there's a big recovery community on Twitter. There seems to be because I've looked at it with what you do and there seems to be a lot but i don't i don't understand it um but i figure if our president can run it i can run it right yeah anybody can do it <laughs> even a caveman in the commercial yeah but, um no um it's been good uh to see how many people have have supported us through all of this um i i don't know if it's uh, Part of our, right now, at the time of this recording here in Alabama, we're still kind of in the quarantine phase. But tomorrow, yeah. we're actually supposed to find out if there's um, going to be some deviation to the rules that's been put down on us. And so, hopefully, I can go get a haircut and get this mop trimmed up on my head sometime soon. I, honestly, if I could get past that, life would be much better. <laughs> that's your worst, your biggest problem is you can't get a haircut. <laughs> Yes, because ever since I've been in the military, I've had really short hair, and this is driving me nuts to touch my ears on the side. I can deal with the top, but the me stuff too. touching my ears. Yeah. Just it off like mine. Yeah, I'm, I just not. I, I did that so long in the army. I don't care to go back to that. Is yours receding like mine, and you're just trying to hide it? Well, I've got it brushed over. That's the worst part right there. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, I, it, as long as you keep a little length, it don't look as bad. You right. know. So, anyways, we're off topic, so let's bring it back home to what we're going to talk about today. Um, As I said at the beginning of this, we're going to be talking about the five pillars to an effective recovery program. Now, um, me and Jason both, or Jason and I, I guess would be the correct way of saying that, are both 12-steppers. We've both come through recovery and have gotten sober through the 12-step process. But I believe that this um, could work regardless of your recovery situation. Now, I'm always going to tell people that I believe the 12 steps are the best way because it worked for me. 
so I, I have experience with that. And I, I know for a fact that if it could take me from what I used to be to what I am today, it works. But I do know other people who have gotten sober in, in different ways. Yes. I'm not here to argue that. You know, and I'm not trying to argue that. But I do believe regardless of which path you take to get sober, these are five things that you need in your recovery program to have a good re- re- recovery program. Uh, so, Jason, here's what I believe is our first pillar that we could talk about. The first important factor when it comes to building a good, effective re- recovery program, and that's determining our health. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's simply like coming up with a recovery plan. You know, well, what's a recovery plan? Well, until you can really determine a problem, you've got to assess the damage. You know, what does it look like? You know, how much are you using? How often are you using? What are you using? Because it's different. You know, as we talk about on our show, you know, we talk about anywhere from food addiction to sexual addiction to drug addictions. All of these addictions look different about how you need to treat them. And, um, of course, we believe those 12 steps can work in all those situations. But regardless, I believe that the kind of the – the, the foundation you build looks different on how bad things look. For instance, if you're um, shooting heroin versus doing cocaine or, or whatever, or, or just eating food, you may need to go into an inpatient treatment program. You may not, you know, I'm not here to debate that, but you need to know how bad it is. Yeah. I mean, whenever there's a tornado or a natural disaster or whatever, you know, you call the insurance company up after afterwards if you have damage on your house, and what do they do? They send a, an insurance adjuster out or a claims adjuster out, and that adjuster goes around with a clipboard, and he looks at your house and, and takes an inventory of everything that's damaged, and then they add up the cost um, to determine, you know, how much money you need in order to fix everything. And you kind of need to do the same thing whenever whenever you finally have gotten out of denial and you realize that, hey, I need to make a change in my life. I, I need to I need to recover. I need to get in some type of recovery program, get a recovery plan going. You need to take an inventory and see how bad things are and, and where you are. And you know what's great about this is there's so many more resources now. Um, you know, the one that comes to mind for where we live here in Birmingham, Alabama, is a recovery resource center. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if your addiction is drugs and alcohol, you can call them up. They do assessments. I mean, a lot of places do this. They'll do an assessment with you, and they'll determine the best, um, you know, path to recovery for your individual, you know, situation. But, you know, like you said, if you you know, are an, an everyday IV heroin user, you're going to need a residential rehab. Whereas if your addiction is, you know, you, you go and you, you know, maybe gamble, you know, one weekend out of the month and that's your addiction, you know, you, you're losing a lot of, a lot of financial, you know, uh, stability because of it. it. It could be causing trouble in your marriage or whatever. You know, you're probably not going to go to a residential rehab, you know, from that. Each situation is going to look different depending on the addiction and the level of the addiction. And so you got you to gotta figure out where you are. But most drug and alcohol, especially if you're everyday user, you're going to need to go to some type of residential uh, rehab. 
And the, the, the important part of this is that when you're trying to do this assessment, and, and I know there's different schools of thought on this, but um, I lean towards this because I did this a lot. As an addict and alcoholic myself, I was a master manipulator. In fact, I still am. I can be. I mean, I, I try not to be, but it's in me. I don't know. It's. I mean, if you need somebody to sell you a car, I would be that guy, and I could make you believe whatever. <laughs> um, so I say that to say this is that, um, if you're going to get one of those assessments that you're speaking of and you're, t- you're talking to professionals, maybe on the healthcare uh, counselor or doctor, uh, and they're asking you questions and they say, okay, how much do you drink, Roger? Well, I, d- I just drink a beer or two um, on the weekend. You know, kind of like when the cop pulls you over, how many you had to drink? Uh, d- just one, sir, just one. You always say a couple. Yeah, and, but you've been drinking all day long. In fact, you've been drinking for the past two weeks. Speaks. Um, the only reason you're in your car is because you want to get more. Yeah. Then, I mean, you, you can't lie to them and, and really have a good recovery plan. You've got to be honest, um, not only with those professionals, but you got to be honest with yourself. Yeah. That's um, probably the most difficult part is now you have to untrain yourself to not believe the lies that you've told yourself for so long. Yeah. And and what stall? I, I see a lot of people stall out at this point in their recovery they know they identify the problem they determine the problem they they know that it's damaging them physically spiritually mentally and they even might get as far as going hey I, you know i do need to go to rehab but then they come up with a million excuses of why to push it off you know well i need to get this and that in order or i, I mean i did this myself there was tons of times where I, I would I would get on a waiting list, you know, for a rehab or whatever. It would be two weeks or whatever. By the time the, the they called me, I wasn't in the mood to even do it anyway. I was our I had already moved on past that, and uh, so you know, a, a lot of people get stalled out on this one on the first part right here, and it's important, uh, you know, whenever. You know, I, I know you have experienced the same thing. Whenever, like a loved one of a family member or a family member of somebody who's a, in addiction, you know, whenever they're talking about trying to get somebody in treatment, I always tell them the best time to get them in treatment is now, or or, or the best place to to put them in is the one that can that they can go to the fastest, because usually there's a short window that somebody is willing to go and that can pass real quick. Okay. And this plan, in, in my opinion, and you may agree or disagree, but I, I believe that it, it should encompass both your, well, all, all three of these, your, your mental state, your physical and your spiritual needs. And you may not even know what those needs are. And just to be honest, you probably don't know what those needs are. Right. It's great to ask some other people in, in with this. So what do I mean with this? Well, physically, as we talked about earlier, it may make a difference going inpatient or outpatient. If you're um, coming off alcohol or benzos or other things, I mean, it could kill you not to go inside and and be detoxed from those things. You know, don't just try to cold turkey yourself off of that um, without talking to a professional about that first. Then mentally, uh, there's a lot of different ways I could attack this part of it. But ultimately, uh, I'll just say this. I've been around long enough to know that most people, especially drug addiction, when they, when they get into recovery, 
I, I'm yet, I guess, to meet someone in recovery who wasn't bipolar when they first walked in the door. Yeah. You know, because we all think that we are bipolar. Well, because there's extreme highs and extreme lows. No, it's because you've been chemically induced for so long, you don't really know what normal is. Yeah. And so I, I'm not I'm not arguing mental health issues with people. Um, there are certainly people who do have um, bipolar and other mental health issues, but the, to self-diagnose yourself with that is probably the wrong move. Uh, give your time. You give yourself time to understand that there's going to be highs, there's going to be lows, but you've got to figure out how to live life on life's terms through all of that. Yeah, and any 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 you know rehab or treatment facility, um, you know that's that's worth its weight is gonna is gonna you're gonna be assessed assessed you know along the way at some point you're gonna see a psychiatrist or whatever. Um, a lot of the ones I went to you know certainly did. And, you know, a lot of them will wait until you've been there a few months to let everything kind of run out of your system, you know, um, because I, I definitely got diagnosed. I was diagnosed as all kind of different stuff, you know, when I was in active addiction. And it turns out it was just the drugs, you know. Um, anybody who was doing the amount of drugs that I was doing was going to have a lot of mental, you know, um, issues going on. And so, but, you know, there's also people who really do have those mental issues going on, their dual diagnosis, and those need to be, needs also need to be addressed, you know, when they're, when they're in recovery. And the third part there that I mentioned that we didn't cover was the spiritual needs. And what do I mean by that? Well, for me, um, today, I mean, we make no bones about it. That, that we're both Christians. Um, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. However, when I first got sober, I probably wouldn't have um, went to a church to do that, nor anything to do with Jesus, because I was so resentful towards that. Mm -hmm. So I would say this to you, if you're that person, then go wherever you got to go to get sober. Yeah, And just get sober. Um, And and then battle the spiritual aspect of it. Um, I certainly believe that salvation comes through Christ alone, but sobriety and salvation is two different issues. And I think it's very hard to hear a salvation story when you're still strung out on dope. Yeah. And so um, don't get hung up on the, the Jesus part of it. Uh, just get just get sober. Uh, find out a way. Find out whatever treatment center you want to go to. It doesn't matter. Just get some help where you're at. Yeah. You don't have to have it all figured out. <laughs> exactly. Still don't. Yeah. No, no, no certainly don't. So the second pillar that we're going to talk about to an effective recovery program is your home. Now, what, what does a home look like? Well, home looks different to a lot of people. You know, for me, I hear stories a lot through testimonies and, and AA share time where people talk about how abusive and horrible their family life was. Maybe they were molested by um, a, a loved one, a, a family member. That's that's a common thing. I say that a lot on here because people don't realize how common that is. But those were not situations in my family. Uh, I had a very good home life. You know, yep. I didn't have those problems. So for me, going back home after I got sober was a very safe place. But for many people, like I said, to go back home, if your mom and dad or your wife is an addict and alcoholic and has not made the decision to change like you have, that's not the best place to go. Yeah, it's very common for people, you know, especially 
you know, in, in families that, you know, addiction kind of runs in the family. And so that may be the last place that's a safe place, uh, you know, especially if your your addiction is drugs and alcohol and there's there's drugs and alcohol in the house. That is definitely not a safe environment for you to begin a recovery lifestyle. And uh, I mean, even with, you know, um, long term sobriety, multiple years of sobriety, I mean, I wouldn't live in a situation like that just because I don't I don't I still don't trust myself, you know, even even with longer term sobriety. And so somebody early on just starting out, you know, that that's a really important thing is having a place that's if your addiction is drugs and alcohol, that's drug and alcohol free. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's so common to know of people who are doing that and they're living in an environment where it's still going on. Yeah, if you're going to leave a recovery meeting and go home to see your wife strung out on the couch, it's it's going to kind of crush that that hope that you received from your meeting. Can you get sober that way? Yes, you can. I've known people that have done it, so I'm not saying that it has to be, but your your chance of, of staying or maintaining sobriety is much higher if you put yourself in a safe place. So what does a safe place look like if you're living with someone in a toxic relationship, we'll just call it that. Well, it may be a halfway house for you. Yeah. It this is after be. rehab. We're talking about after a treatment center here. Or, or it could just be the person who doesn't need to go inpatient that just needs to get a fresh start. Sober li- they just need a sober living experience. Yeah. So, I mean, so you've got different avenues depending on where you're at when you look at your recovery plan and you assess your problem. Um, halfway houses are one thing and you know it's just a, a community living place where everyone is struggling with something and they're they're trying to just create a safe environment for you to, to live in so you can rebuild your life did you ever go to a halfway house i didn't i had a lot of run-ins with a lot of guys who's lived in a halfway house that was close to us <laughs> i got kicked off for a second i found you again okay. we're back Technology. All right. <laughs> that was a Mickey Hardwick calling me in and messing me up. Mickey. We've had him on the show before. Yeah, he was a guest on the show. Yeah, so um, so the second option would kind of be, well, you just go to a second phase of that residential program. Oftentimes you'll go in to a, a program and all you want to do is get out and so you can get your job, so you can get your money and all those things back. Well, maybe you need that second phase because you don't have it all figured out yet. Yeah. So there where it's safe yeah i mean I, I i usually recommend that to a lot of people all the time if there's a second phase of the program where there's a halfway house or a three-quarter house um i know the last rehab that i went to um there was an option for me to stay after the program was over and i stayed i actually stayed the program was six months and then i, I stayed after the six months was up and i graduated i stayed another nine months there just because I needed I needed more time to get back on my feet. I mean, I had just started, you know, feeling normal again after six months, you know, especially, I would say, especially with opiate addiction, which is so prevalent nowadays. I mean, some, some treatment facilities now, that's all they take is opiate um, addictions because there's so much of it. But especially with the opiate addiction, I mean, you really need months um, to, to, until your, your body and your mind is somewhat back to normal. 
So the third pillar that we're going to talk about is purpose. Um, it's really just developing a purpose or possibly one way we could say this is just starting a routine. Because here, here's how my life looked at when I was on drugs. I woke up, hopefully that I had managed my drugs right the night before, so that would have something to wake up to so that it wouldn't be so bad that next morning with the, the anxiety and, the, well, just the cramps and several things that come along with that. So if I'd done that, then I would go ahead and get high, and then I would figure out how to come up with some more money, and usually it involved conning somebody or stealing something or selling something to make that happen. It wasn't ever like a nine to five job. Oh yeah. With the, the one of the most depressing feelings when you're a drug addict is when you mismanage your drugs overnight and you stay up all night and you use the, the rest of your drugs up about three o'clock in the morning. And then you're watching the sun come up knowing that you are out of money and you're out of drugs. It is horrible. And then you have to figure out, you know, do I, you know, how much money can I get out of that weed eater I got out there, you know? And it's just. You live in high class, man. I didn't ever have no weed eater. It was going quick. Yeah. I mean, get that 20 bucks for that weed eater, you know, feeling like you're on top of the world again. Then, But then it's the same thing every day. It's just an endless cycle. Um, But yeah. But that, that was my routine, just like you're talking yeah. about. And then I would go and do that all day long until I blacked out or passed out or ran out and then started over the next day. And that was it was it was a routine. It just wasn't a productive routine. It certainly didn't give me any purpose in life. If I if I'm going to get in and develop a effective recovery program, then I need to have a routine that provides purpose, uh, meaningful uh, purpose in my life. For me, that began with um, going to meetings. Now, I remember getting out of rehab and my sponsor, I'd asked him to sponsor me because he was one of the guys who came in to um, to the rehab I was at and gave his testimony. Yeah. Um, not only that, he was also my lawyer uh, who was <laughs> representing me on a felony charge. And so what better person to have is your attorney and your sponsor at the same person. Plus he was a friend of the family. It was, it worked out just right. But he, he told me that night where a meeting was that Monday night when I got out and in my head, I was like, man, I've done enough of these meetings. I just want to go home and chill. And even though in the beginning, even from that first day, I didn't want to go to meetings. I started doing it because people told me I needed to do something different in my life. So I started going to meetings. I started getting back into work and doing productive things again and learning responsibility. This was the coolest thing. Well, it wasn't cool then, but I look back at it now and understand it better. I literally had to, to understand that it was it was productive to get up at, you know, seven or eight in the morning, even if I didn't have anything to do, just because that's what grownups do. They get up in the morning and they, they try to find something to fill their time. And, and I couldn't just stay up till four and five o'clock in the morning. I needed to go to sleep at a certain time so that I could get up the next morning at eight and still and feel energized. Yeah, Those are things that gave me purpose in my life. Oh yeah. I mean, the power of a routine in and of itself. I remember when I first, um started going to uh meetings back in 2010 um and i got a sponsor yeah there was a there was a period of time where i didn't have a job and he was like and he told me to wake up in the morning and then um there was another period of time where i didn't have a job i think it was 
it was nine years ago whenever the tornadoes had came through this area. And he said, you don't have a job. Um, so what are you doing every day? And I was like, I, nothing really. I'm just coming to these meetings. He's like, why don't you volunteer somewhere? Why aren't you volunteering, you know, helping with all these tornadoes? And so he kind of instilled in me the importance of, you know, actually doing something, not just because a lot of times when you get out of rehab, you know, you don't, you don't have a job, you know, necessarily. And so just having a routine, having somewhere to be, you know, um, is a powerful thing. I mean, I, especially right now during this, this, uh, this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, having, having a routine, keeping my routine where I, you know, where I'm running in the mornings and all that kind of stuff, um, has really kind of kept me sane, really having, having that structure still in place. Well, you know, one of those things about actually having something to do is getting out of ourselves and because, I've not met an, an, an addict or an alcoholic who wasn't selfish to the core. And so in order to have purpose, we have to look outside of ourselves. And the best way to do that, as you mentioned, with working with tornado relief or whatever, is to give back. One of the ways that I would give back at the beginning is the recovery house that I got sober in. It was an AA place. Uh, it was a clubhouse. So they owned their own building. They didn't meet in a church or anything else. Uh, they were allowed to smoke in there. And so part of the duties there was to clean up ashtrays. They still smoking there too. I know. Twenty still smoking inside. Yeah, I think it's illegal as it could be there now, but they're doing it. Because even when I quit smoking um, a few years after I got sober, I still picked up ashtrays because it was my way of giving back. I still took out the trash. In fact, I would make coffee when I first got sober, and I didn't even drink coffee. I was years into recovery before I drank coffee. Weird, I know. Weird. I wouldn't. Have, I don't think I could have gotten so. I mean, it would have been a tough road to get sober without coffee. But I mean, so those were ways that I would give back. Those things, as small as they may sound to our listeners, that gives people purpose, and that's the reason. If your sponsor says do this or do that, it's to give you some purpose to help build one of these pillars that we're talking about. You know, and the fourth one that we can talk about here is community. And we talk about working or you could call it working or you can call it serving. Serving seems to sound better when we say it, but when we serve by doing those things, we are creating community around us. Some of my best conversations have happened at my church or at my recovery program, not in the meeting, but after the meeting when I'm doing stuff, helping paint a room or something like that. Cause I get to talk to someone and I get to, to get to know them better. And that's the reason it's important to get out of your bubble and maybe even out of your comfort zone to meet new people. Because when we stay there um, by ourselves, we stay isolated. And when we stay isolated, we, we get depressed. And that's a common thing I'm hearing right now with this COVID-19, battling depression. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as community, it's like whenever – uh, you know, whenever I would be talking to somebody um, before all this stuff hit about, you know, going to a meeting, I always encourage them, hey, look, just stick your hand out, say, hey, my name's so-and-so, what's your name? And I know that s sounds simple, but somebody told me that early on, that when I, if I go to a new meeting or something, to just go around, introduce myself to everybody in the meeting, 
And I'm like, but that's weird. And they told me, no, it's not weird. You know, we're a recovery community. You know what is weird is when you ask a guy who's missing his right hand to stick his hand out and just say, hi, I'm so-and-so. It's coming. But, you know, for real, though, I'm I'm being, I mean, I I am joking or being a little facetious with that. But here's the deal is that for a guy like me, I can give you 110 excuses of why it's uncomfortable to to do that. I mean, I, I don't know how to shake hands with someone. It's hard to shake hands with your left hand. It's hard to circle up and close a meeting out with the Lord's Prayer when the guy beside you is swinging for a hand that's not there. So there is a, a, a huge measure of being uncomfortable in a recovery group. But if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. And I mean, going forward, you know, we're probably not going to be, I mean, I'm assuming whenever in-person meetings resume here uh, over the next month or two months or whenever it is for your state where you live, you know, we might forego the holding hands at the end of the meeting saying the Lord's Prayer or the Serenity Prayer. You know, it's going to look a little different. So metaphorically shake hands and reach out and, 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 you know, get out of your introverted you know, comfort, comfort zone, because, you know, it kind of took me a while to do whenever I was first in recovery meetings was to not be so introverted and just want to sit down and not talk to anybody because it's a wee program. So I thought about this the other day, I actually ran across a um, quote that sounded similar to this and I kind of rewrote it for me personally um, of just goals and things I try to do just to kind of grow as a person and this question, I think I put it on one of our, our social media outlets, but um, I wrote, does your friends remind you of the person you used to be or the person you're trying to become? And I think that's what community does is that uh, the people I associate myself with now is the people I'm trying to become. So if you're, if you're using, if you're, um, you can't quit eating, you're struggling with that, whatever it is, you know, you would be in a much better place if you're struggling with food addiction to be inside the gym when people are working out. You'll be more inclined to want to work out because you're seeing people around you working out. If you're doing dope all the time and you go to the bar, well, it's kind of hard to get motivated to get sober. But if you're going to a recovery meeting where other people are talking about recovery, it's much easier to stay sober in that situation. So that's the reason community is important. You're around more positive people. And if you're not around positive people, then, well, you need to change your friends. Yeah, you got to change your playmates, playgrounds, and playthings or whatever that, whatever, however that saying goes. Um, you know, if you, if you get out of treatment or get out of halfway house and you just go be around the same friends that, were, that you were using and drinking with, you know, then you're not going to stand a chance. What do they say? If you go to the barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. Yep. And, and that is true. I mean, if someone's listening to me and thinks they can beat this, well, go for it. But I'm going to tell you, and I'm not going to say it won't happen that you can't stay sober that way, but odds are certainly not in your favor. I've seen more people try to maintain those old habits, those old friendships to because they didn't want to give up. That's all they knew. Yeah. If you'll leave those unhealthy relationships and fi- and go through the hard transition of, of, you know, metaphorically putting your hand out and trying to befriend new people that are, are goal-oriented the same way you are, oh, you go much further that way. I mean, to, to build a community um, around yourself, a recovery network, whatever term you want to use, it's going to take work. 
you're going to have to actually try. It's not just going to automatically appear around you when you get out of a treatment center. You can't go back to your mom's house and just sit in there doing nothing every single day like I did whenever I got out of treatment a couple of times and expect you know, a, a community to just appear around you. It, it took work. It took effort. I mean, even when I moved back here from uh, New Orleans three years ago, I had to put in some work to rebuild a recovery network around me um, that I had built up down there. And so it, it, it takes work. When I, I think I was 26 when I got sober, if I'm correct on the math there. But um, when I got sober, I was already living in my own place i have my own house but i when i got out of recovery i was afraid to go back there because well i sold a lot of dope out of there so people would just show in and out a lot i didn't trust myself and i had every right not to trust myself so i moved back in with my parents because like i said earlier they were safe people to me and i had not i didn't have any friends outside of addiction and so that's what I had to do for my sobriety. And it stayed that way for a little while until I could trust myself to be out on my own again. And so it did take some work. It took some sacrifice on my part to humble myself enough to say, I need more than being out here on my own. Yeah. And, and, and when the old friends would call, I would just ignore it. Our well, phone. I went with a whole new phone. phone oh, yeah. I mean, but you know, now you got the whole Apple you know, iCloud, whatever, just delete their number, you know, just delete their number. That person that's going to call you and try to get you to get back into what you were doing before, just delete their number. I mean, there was, I think there was one time where with my sponsor at the time, we went through my phone and he went through every single contact and was like, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Who is, who is D? Who is, who is little P? Uh, <laughs> Why you got Pookie's number in there? <laughs> or, or Big D. You know, he knew who Big D was. He knew he knew Big D wasn't my cousin. You know, work at the furniture store, did he? Or there was one in there that it was it was named Cuz. He's like, I'm assuming this is not your actual cousin. I was like, Yeah, you're right. He was like, All right, delete it. Oh, that's good. But that leads us into our last pillar, which is accountability. Yeah, you know, accountability is one of those things that nobody wants, but everybody needs. Uh, nobody wants to be told what to do, or, or, or oftentimes we don't even really want somebody's suggestion because all we have is opinions. And I, I'd be glad to tell you what to do. I may not even take my own advice. In fact, I tell people to take it because I'm not using it. But, you know, ultimately an accountability partner or a sponsor is not someone to mandate what you should do, but it's someone to teach you what they've done if you want their opinion you know some sponsors will give it to you regardless some won't give it to you unless you ask for it and you know again that takes work to do that if you just go to a meeting and sit there chances are you're never going to get no one when i first started going to meetings people would um i would see everybody laughing and giggling and talking and I'm like, why won't they talk to me? Well, I made myself unapproachable. I didn't want to be around people. I would sit in a corner or whatever. And so they let me be there. And okay. I would walk around in the shadows, if you will, until finally, I, I you know, I kind of, I let a wall down and I, I, I let someone in enough to where I would trust, maybe let them trust, or I would trust them just a little bit. 
and you know a little bit got a little bit more and finally i started letting people in and you know in many recovery groups they talk a lot about sponsors i guess every recovery group i've been around 12 step anyway talks about sponsors now some other of the groups don't talk about accountability partners as much and so I just want to hit on that briefly is that accountability partners are simply those folks who are kind of getting in recovery about the same time as you, maybe yeah. uh, just a phone number or someone who's struggling like you struggle and are, are just willing to, Hey man, I didn't see you at a meeting last night. Where was you? You know, what's going on? Or just maybe you got a hobby together and just say, hey, let's go do something. So, you know, you ain't going to sit at your mom and dad's house all night tonight, whatever that is, um, you know, find those people, and build them around you and that begins making a new community for you because yeah. you, you need something to to maintain when you're outside of a meeting because you can't always be in a meeting like right now exactly. you know i mean right now um during this whole lockdown situation having accountability partners and a sponsor um i mean it, it it's a it's a resource that I can't imagine going through this without. Um, and I know me and you have both talked to different um, people during this time, um, reaching out for help, you know, wanting to get sober. And my heart breaks for them because the, the main thing that we always sent people to was in-person meetings, go to a meeting, you know, and, and we don't have those right now. And uh, all we have are the, the online meetings that, that a lot of us have been doing. And those are great, but it's just, it's not the same. And I know a lot of people are struggling out there because of it. But if you were fortunate enough going into this whole lockdown situation to have a sponsor and have that accountability already in place, then more than likely you've really leaned on that, um, you know, because, you know, that's kind of, what we have right now, you know, without the in-person meetings, um, you know, your, your sponsor is your main, um, your, your main uh, point of contact in your whole recovery program. And so being able to reach out to them and, and be encouraged with them and share with them what you're struggling with because of all this, or, you know, you might've been struggling in your recovery, you know, just because, you know, I mean, without all this COVID-19 lockdown stuff, you might just have been struggling anyway. And so being able to have that person to lean on um, is huge during this time. And and, and it makes a, a great case to have that person for when stuff like this happens. You know, you, you, you need a somebody, you need that accountability team, that recovery network, uh, accountability partner, sponsor, whatever you want to call them, you need that in your recovery plan um, for whenever, you know, unexpected things happen, you know, deaths in the family happen, those triggers that could trigger a relapse for you, um, which happen all the time, uh, whenever those happen, you have that person to talk to. Well, let's recap the show before we get out of here. Um, when we're talking about uh, building an effective recovery program, there are five pillars. Um, at least five that we want to talk about today. And the first one is your health. You know, the best way to determine that is to de uh, determine a recovery plan. What does it look like? You know, what's your problem? Um, you can address both your mental, physical, and spiritual needs when you're determining that. 
The next um, pillar of that would be your home life. You know, after you get out of rehab or possibly beginning your recovery program without rehab, um, is your home safe? You want to make sure that you do have a safe home. And maybe that makes um, for you going to a halfway house or a second phase in treatment program, which will bring us to our third pillar, which is your purpose. Uh, We all want purpose. We need to have a purpose in life. And one of those ways that we can develop a healthy purpose is is by creating a routine uh, for someone early in recovery, especially, and even now in recovery, meetings um, and work create responsibility. And that's what we need. And this is just a way that we can give back to other people. And that brings us to our fourth pillar, which is community. Um, We need community, whether it be with your church family, whether it be with your recovery um, family, you need people to encourage you and support you. In fact, if your friends do not encourage you or support you, well, they may be those old people who remind you of the person you don't want to be anymore. You you need new people, right? Then um, finally, we have um, accountability, which is our fifth pillar which is um, essentially what you just talked about with sponsorship and accountability team. And you can call them your coach and your teammates. You can call them whatever you want to call them, but you need to build a core group of people around you who know you and know when you're missing from a group and so that they can see and spot flaws or triggers or shortcomings in your life um, when no one else can because they know you better than anyone else. Would you say that's a good assessment of today's show? That's it. Yeah. Well, all right, guys. Um, We want to thank you for tuning in. Again, thank you for your support and your encouragement as we have passed the one-year mark here in our shows. I think this is around episode 62, if I'm correct. Nope. Am I not? It'll be 63. 63. 64. 60-ish. 60-something. Ish. And so I hope there's 60 more times 60 more to go because we've still got a lot of content to talk about. And if you've been, um, if you've been encouraged and you've enjoyed our speakers that we've had on here recently and you would like to come on the show, then we would like to hear your story. You can email us a, just a, a copy of your story, um, your testimony, or whatever you want to call it, your journey of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Send that to us uh, by email at soberholicpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's soberholicpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see about trying to get you on the show. Yeah. Check out our new website, soberholicpodcast.com. All right, Jason. That's another one in the books. I'm Roger. I'm Jason. We're signing out. Thanks for listening to Soberholic with Roger and Jason. If you like the show and want to know more, check out SoberholicPodcast.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Soberholics. Soberholics.